Welcome to One True Podcast. My name is Mark Chirino with Michael Von Cannon producing. In his memoir, A Movable Feast, Ernest Hemingway wrote, All you have to do is write one true sentence. Write the truest sentence that you know. So finally, I would write one true sentence and then go on from there. In that same spirit of honesty, creativity, and curiosity, One True Podcast explores all things related to Ernest Hemingway, his life, his work, and his world. And today's episode, One True Podcast, celebrates its 100th episode by taking a look at the legendary stolen manuscripts of 1922 by talking with four novelists who made that historical event the subject of their fiction. Before we listen to those fascinating and entertaining interviews, Michael Von Cannon, come on out. I'm here, Mark. Congratulations and happy 100. It's amazing. I feel like uh, that little quip in The Sun Also Rises about bankruptcy. <laughs> so <laughs> gradual getting this thing started, and then we are 100 in. Here we are. Here uh, we are. This is 98 episodes more than I thought we were going to end up doing, so I am delighted that we would. And as our listeners would know, Michael, you hosted two and a half episodes. Uh, the Absolutely. We're, it's almost 50-50. There, so. <laughs> no, no. The live <laughs> Wyoming episode, the great interview with Hideo Yanagisawa, and of course... The laptop dying episode with Sean Hemingway. So that's true. Yeah, you have been, <laughs> you have stepped in on those on those occasions. But anyway, this has been great. Before we start our, uh, and maybe we'll do one of our future episodes. I know people have been asking about it. We can do a mailbag or just a general recap. But now is not the time. We have no. we have business ahead of us. I do want to say, and I, I guess on behalf of both of us, Michael. Uh, we really do want to thank, first of all, our guests. Uh, we've had more than a hundred guests now. They have been so generous and patient and insightful. They've made the show what it is. They're the stars of the show. So we really do thank all of our guests for lending some class and intellect to, <laughs> to our endeavors. We want to thank our listeners who, you know, obviously without them, nothing could have happened. We wouldn't, we wouldn't do it. So they've been imaginative, curious and supportive. So thank you a million times over for listening and for telling friends and for leaving ratings and for even joining us on Patreon. Some of you, we really appreciate that. Mm -hmm. That helps us uh, get along and, um, lastly, thank you to our sponsors, the Hemingway Society and all those who have sponsored our podcast for, again, helping us keep the lights on. Why don't we segue in and talk a little bit about the manuscript. Michael, we looked at each other we're like, look at all these novels that have been, have used that event. So maybe we can just describe the historical event that took place and then maybe talk about it for a little bit and then we'll let these writers take over. But we're talking in December, 1922, Michael, what happened? I mean, so, you know, I think we're going to get into a bit of the history when we get into the, uh, 
interview. But I mean, long story short, uh, Hadley is going to meet Hemingway. She's leaving from Paris uh, to meet uh, him. He's out of town. And the crux of it is she brings all of his writing, carbons included, in a suitcase, and they are lost or stolen. What happens? Uh, but they are they are taken um, at one of the train stations in Paris. And that becomes one of the most pivotal events in their relationship. I mean, it it uh, is w- one of those, as we will hear in the interviews, it's one of those instances where Hemingway will refer to it uh, years yeah. fr- from then as something that will uh, cause a... Uh, a split without a doubt. And this is not as, you know, again, as we're going to talk about in the interview, this is not a case of, Oh, it's a gaffe. I misplaced one of your possessions this is almost like is a trust issue mm. that, and there's even the suggestion. We had a wonderful episode with Joya Diliberto. There's even the suggestion that Hadley did passive aggressive things to sort of make points or get attention and not, whether this was conscious or subconscious, people have been talking about this event for over a hundred. You know, they every yeah. time they talk about Hemingway, they're saying, you know, what was what was in this suitcase? Why did Hadley do it? Should Hadley have not? You know, how did Hemingway? And so this has led to so much banter and discourse mm. that it is a fascinating thing. And these people who chose. This event for their novels, they chose it well because there's a lot to it. Actually, what was in the suitcase and what wasn't in there, right? I mean, there were a few stories that were not in there. Hemingway makes reference uh, numerous times, including in A Movable Feast, to the fact that My Old Man was one of those stories that wasn't in there. But a, a lot of work was, a lot of juvenilia uh, was, but to Hemingway's mind at that moment in time, it was the best work of his life <laughs> that was uh, in that suitcase. Yeah. And yet, a number of other writers, uh, Pound and others included, uh, would would give him some advice uh, that hey, this this might have been a good thing for you uh, to have written it, to have it um, lost or yeah. stolen or yeah. what have you, and to be able to re- if you can remember it, then that's the good stuff. Like in the Garden of Eden, yeah. the way the Garden of Eden ends. So in it's 1922, Hemingway is 23 years old, and at this point, is it possible to say that even by age 23, he has suffered three of the central traumas of his life, being blown up in July of 1918, being dumped by Agnes von Karowski in 1919, and then losing his manuscripts in December of 1922. So even as a young man, those three things, he would come back to them in his life and in his fiction. I... Uh, Michael, you and I have been bouncing around talking to people about our book, One True Sentence, Writers and Readers on Hemingway's Art. And during a lot of book events, as the concept of One True Sentence comes up, people have asked me what my One True Sentence is. I confess it's not everybody because not everybody cares. But when they do ask me what my One True Sentence is, as it happens, my One True Sentence has to do with the manuscripts. It's from A Movable Feast. It's in the chapter, Hunger Was Good Discipline. And I would like to celebrate our 100th episode by at least reading the Hemingway sentence. That is my nomination for his one true sentence. And Michael, maybe you can react to it. So Hemingway is describing meeting Hadley at the train station. Hadley is devastated, 
obviously upset because she has to tell him, I lost your work. So finally, she told me, blah, blah, blah. And Hemingway says, I couldn't believe she would have brought everything, including the carbons, including everything that was I'd ever written. And so here's the sentence. It was true, all right. And I remember what I did in the night after I let myself into the flat and found it was true. So he quickly goes back to Paris to confirm this. And it is true. It was true, all right. And I remember what I did in the night after I let myself into the flat and found it was true. And I find that sentence so evocative and mysterious Mm -hmm. and even ominous that I think in when we talk about Hemingway's iceberg theory, as it is distilled down to a single sentence, I don't think he was ever better than that. You know, that sentence is almost like the suitcase itself. To me, it's like it's suggesting what might be inside of it, but we don't really know what's happening. It is such a private moment, isn't it? It is. You know, Um, I also love and Hemingway does this a lot where we have two words uh, that are happening at the beginning and the end. It was true. All right. And then he ends with yeah, true, right? That's right. Uh, just uh, rhythmically, uh, those are always and, uh, those are always really beautiful moments. I agree. That's mm-hmm. a great point. And to talk about the one true sentence, and then the word true occurs twice. Mm-hmm. It's also as a as a writer to say, after I let myself into the flat. Now that's seven words. I think seven words that would appear to be completely unnecessary, Hmm. except what it does is it slows down the anticipation of either Mm -hmm. finding that the previous two years of your life have been wasted or not. And so you can imagine the key going into the key and he's letting himself in and he doesn't tell you what he did, but he does spend time telling you, about crossing that threshold of, of finding, of finding out exactly what's going. And I just think that's a master stroke. Yeah. Yeah. It, anybody who has been to that apartment on Cardinal Le Moine or who has seen a photo of it knows how far up they lived and can imagine, uh, Hemingway traveling up that staircase and thinking, Oh, certainly maybe she took the originals, but not the typescripts. Or maybe she took both, but not the carbons. She couldn't have taken everything, right? It had to have him. And we do this all the time, don't we? We either oh, yeah. catastrophize or yeah. we come back from catastrophizing to think it can't be as bad as I'm imagining. Yeah. And then as you're saying, yeah, let's slow this down and let's hope <laughs> as that door is slowly opening. And when Michael visited that apartment, he did look through all the drawers to double check that that manuscript actually had <laughs> had been taken, right? Yeah. Oh, you looked in all the nook and, nooks and crannies, oh right? It, it's it's irresistible. Also, <laughs> as you're going through the uh, the train station, um, yeah, that's the, right. You know, to garbage to, cans, in, you know. Yeah, yeah. Do some detectiving. So it was irresistible for our following four guests too. And so I hope our listeners will enjoy their show. Michael, happy 100. Happy 100. Sherry Harris is the Agatha Award nominated author of the Sarah Winston Garage Sale Mystery Series and the Chloe Jackson Sea Glass Saloon Mysteries. Sherry is past president of Sisters in Crime and a member of Mystery Writers of America. You can learn more at SherryHarrisAuthor.com. David Behrens 
is the USA Today best-selling author of the internationally read Troy Bodine Tropical Thriller series, the action-packed Ryan Bodine action-adventure series, and the highly-charged Chris Collins CIA thriller series. Please visit baronsbooks.com, B-E-R-E-N-S books.com for more information. Sherry Harris and David Behrens, we're so happy to have you on One True Podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Happy to be here, yeah. Well, it's a great pleasure. And so it's fascinating that so many writers are taking the historical incident of Hemingway losing his suitcase or getting it stolen and turning it into fiction. So, Sherry, maybe you can start. Tell us a little bit about The Gun Also Rises. So The Gun Also Rises is the sixth book in the Sarah Winston Garage Sale Mysteries. And um, Sarah organizes garage sales for people. That's her job. And one day a very wealthy woman calls and asks her to come help her organize her book club, her, her book collection, her mystery books for a fundraiser for the library, the town library. And Sarah's going through all this stuff and finds the Hemingway manuscripts that have disappeared. And, um, but they immediately get stolen again. And so it, it's Sarah's quest for finding, um, the book, the book, the manuscripts again. That's excellent. David, tell us about the Hemingway code. Yeah. So the Hemingway code is my, is the third novel in my Ryan Bodine action, uh, adventure series. And I used the, uh, missing suitcase sort of as a, a kickoff point. And we actually do the first, uh, four chapters. We actually see that scene, um, where the, where the manuscripts were lost. So, um, Hadley is there and she's on the train and she's heading over to see Hemingway. And so she loses those manuscripts. And in, in my version, the manuscripts, the uh, suitcase gets stolen by a sort of shady cult-like organization that uh, holds it over Hemingway's head um, because there's something in that in that suitcase that that has, uh, shall we say, more interesting implications without spoiling it, without spoiling it all. <laughs> That's great. So maybe I'd like both of you to answer is if you could explain why this incident motivated you to write a book? Do you remember when you first heard about Hemingway's suitcase? So when my editor at Kensington, Gary Goldstein, and I were talking about ideas for my sixth book, he just for some reason said, you know, why do you include like a Hemingway-like character? And so I was like, oh, yeah. And so I started doing some research and actually found your website and read the story about the missing manuscripts. And it just is such a fascinating story. I'm sure David feels the same way. And it just was light bulb, you know, this is what I want to write about. And so I got hold of my editor and said, let's actually use Hemingway. And um so we, you know, tossed that around a bit. And he said, yeah, let's do it. And then... Cozy traditional mysteries often have very punny titles. And so I actually, what the main character 
um, the woman that's running has all these books is her name is Bell, B-E-L-L-E. And so I wanted the title to be For Whom the Bell, B-E-L-L-E, tolls, but then he came up with The Gun Also Rises. So (laughs) that's what we did. David, do you remember your origin point? Gosh, mine was really similar to that. Um, I'm kind of in a, uh, I guess, a master group or, you know, a, a group of authors that that talk to each other about what's going on in their books and, you know, talk about storylines. And many of the, the guys that I write with and ladies that I write with are archaeological thriller type writers. And so it feels to me like all that's been done, uh, even though I wrote about it, you know, El Dorado and Atlantis. And that's been done a lot. And so, you know, I was just thinking back through and trying to find a, you know, a suitable mystery that felt um, grounded in reality. And I don't remember the exact moment, but somebody said something about, you know, what about all these, you know, ships that have gone missing? What about, you know, this Amelia Earhart's plane and Ernest Hemingway's suitcase? And I was like, wait, what? Back up. <laughs> so I, I do have a little bit of an affinity for the for Hemingway's works. And I thought, well, that sounds interesting. I literally had never heard of the suitcase until that moment. And so I did the research and I went back and looked it up and I was like, well, that's that's very fascinating. I can work with that. And it feels real and it feels feels very grounded. So in each of your novels, what do what does the suitcase represent? Is it value like it's a commodity because people want it? It's obviously people would kill for uh Keshe of Hemingway's unpublished writing, but also could it mean other things to other people? How did you tackle that? Yeah, so I used it in a, a little bit of an interesting way where it disappears um, as it does in reality. It disappears and gets into the hands of an organization that wants to hold sway over the actual Ernest Hemingway. So he, like I said, the, the actual Ernest Hemingway person or character appears in my in my book. And this cult-like organization, um, which is actually real, which is a real cult, um, has grabbed the suitcase in an effort to use Ernest Hemingway um, it politically, because there are, if you know, you know his history, there are some politics behind all that uh, with Cuba and some of those things that get tied up and tangled up. And um, without without spoiling the plot, it's it's key, you know. So that suitcase becomes a hold over Ernest Hemingway, and it, it turns him into a I don't know if I don't want to say an agent for, but uh, a little bit of a uh, I guess an assistant to the the bad guys. So it's leverage because it's something that Hemingway himself desperately wants to have back. Correct. Right. Yeah. Sherry, how did you handle that? First, David, that sounds so fascinating. <laughs> I can't wait to read your book. That that really sounds good. So mine is present day and um it is more just greedy people, you know, want this. Um, they're also in my book looking for a limited edition of The Sun Also Rises, which had um, Hemingway had put some together in my imaginary world with notes and stuff. And so they're really trying to find that. But then Sarah finds these manuscripts. And so it's more just greed is motivating um, and... Uh, yeah, I don't, again, don't want to say too much more. So if people want to read the book, it's not spoiled. So, well, Sherry, you were mentioning your research 
process and the suitcase incident jumped out. Were there, I mean, Hemingway lived such an adventurous life filled with lots of conflicts and lots of sort of mythical moments. Was there something about the suitcase and the manuscript that kind of triggered a reaction in you that maybe his other, other episodes didn't have that kind of resonance? You know, I think it was reading about Hadley and her emotional connection and her devastation. And, and, you know, I, I could just picture if only I had left the carbon copies, you know, if only I had left the suitcase, if, you know, all those if only moments that, um, that I could feel her pain and her grief. And, and the interview is fascinating to hear her talk about that years later and how, what a big impact it was on her life and his life. And, um, so that, that's the thing that really triggered it for me. I mean, fascinating that they were stolen, but just this human emotion and devastation really sealed the deal for me. Right. And David, I know that that's an episode in your book where uh, people have to imagine that not only did Hadley lose or have the suitcase stolen, there's also the hours on the train where she has to prepare to tell Ernest. And think of the emotions that are attached to that. Yeah, that really is exactly um, when I, when I really started researching it, that's exactly what hit me was, Oh my gosh, how bad she must have felt, um, you know, waiting to, to reveal to him that they're gone. Um, you know, and if you read it, there is this sort of created scene where she's standing at the train station and she wants to go get, you know, a cup of coffee or something. And so she leaves it not thinking, Oh, that somebody's going to grab it. She comes back and it's gone. And that moment in, for me in the book was just really powerful. And that's what, that's what I think drew me to it as well. Yeah, we were, we just had an interview with uh, Joya Diliberto, who is Hadley's biographer. And she was saying that it was almost like that moment affected their relationship forever. Like the, just in the sense of Hemingway didn't feel like he could trust her anymore. It was almost like an act of betrayal. It wasn't a simple careless mishap. It actually wrecked a marriage. So, just such a powerful moment to to dramatize in, in your fiction. So uh, I'd, I'm interested in each of your relationship to Hemingway as readers and writers. Sherry, had you read much of Hemingway growing up and in, in your development as a as a writer? You know, in high school, you always get assigned a Hemingway book, and so I read a few. I um, and. I don't think at the time I appreciated it as much. Um, but then in college, I was doing a independent lit class and, um, my professor assigned the, um, to read a clean, well-lighted place. And, you know, it's not by any means his most famous work, but that story just grabbed me. And I even mention it in The Gun Also Rises. I, I make a little reference to her. And I think it's so interesting because, you know, about the old man in the sea, Hemingway famously says, I'm paraphrasing, but the old man is the old man and the sea is the sea and there's no symbolism. 
but you cannot read a clean, well-lighted place without layer after layer of symbolism of light and darkness and being old and being alone and being young and being thoughtless and um, good and evil. Even it just, it's a fascinating, it's only three pages, you know, but it's just, uh, it just always stayed with me. Unlike most of the stories I read in college. And so that's great. um, I think, yeah. And then, you know, reading, rereading his books later in life and appreciating his writing and his talent. And, um, it's, it's just a whole different thing. Yeah. I've always detested that quote from Hemingway where he's saying that nothing is symbolic in his work. It's, it's like it's trying to put me out of a job. So I, I, <laughs> I, I object to what he said and I, I reject it. Yes. Uh, David, how about your reading experience, uh, when it comes to Hemingway? Boy, it's really the same, right? You know, we all, I think we all come to the old man in the sea probably, um, first early on. Um, and it, it struck me as a, a pretty interesting story, but I did not become a Hemingway, you know, fan at that point or anything like that. Um, and it wasn't until years later that I began to understand, you know, who Hemingway was that I became more interested in reading his work. Um, you know, I even made the pilgrimage down to Key West to see the, you know, the Hemingway days. And it's just all of these, you know, lookalike Hemingway guys walking around and you get into that feel of who the human was. And then, you know, you see the house and it's just so cool and so amazing. And it's one of those rare situations where the writer actually might be more important than the work. And I don't know if that's accurate to say, you know, but from my perspective, he became so important to me that I decided I wanted to do this story that has him in it. But I also wanted to have a character later on who sort of in the book represents um, the father figure. You know, Ryan is, is sort of this younger man who has has his own flaws. And so I wanted, you know, this Hemingway character to come in and be the, the father figure or the main character. So that's where I come to it from, not from just a full full on love of his writing, even though I do fully respect his writing. Right. So I remember talking with Naomi Wood, who the novelist who wrote Mrs. Hemingway. And in that novel, a great novel, Hemingway is also a character. So David, did you, did you find that intimidating or exhilarating to, to put words in Hemingway's mouth and just go for it? How, what was your strategy? Yeah, so I knew, you know, I knew coming in that the first few scenes were going to be the suitcase going away. And so I had to not only write Hemingway, but I had to write um, Hadley. And I wanted to be very accurate, as accurate as I could, and as true to the story as I could. So I mean, we probably I wrote with with another person who was sort of my developmental editor going through. And I mean, I, we wrote it and I wrote it and I wrote it and I came back to it. And I was like, does it does it sound like it could actually be Ernest Hemingway? And I mean, you know, there were times where it felt harsh and it felt cruel. And I was like, but maybe that's where he was. You know, when that suitcase went away, that's what he would probably have said. So, you know, I'm careful to, I think at the beginning of the book, before all the story gets started, you know, I say, hey, this is fiction, even though this is a real event that happened, there's not really a, a record of it other than just, you know, hearsay and you know, having hearing people talk about it. So it was an interesting thing to do to write that heroic character 
and yet try to make it as real yeah. and legit as possible. Yeah. Sherry, what do you think really happened? I mean, if we could take a step back and just recall that Hemingway wasn't even Hemingway back then. So the guy stealing the suitcase in Paris at that moment was probably hoping that there was, you know, actually something tangible and saleable in there. So what right. do you imagine actually became of, of this in real life? Yeah. So in, cause I, I'm sure David does the same, did the same thing. You, you just try to think what could have happened. And I'm like, Oh, somebody saw this case. They're probably hoping there's jewelry in it. They take it off the train or whatever. And throw it all into the waste basket. Oh my gosh, it just breaks my heart to think about, but that is most likely so the, what happened. So the suitcase to me. was more was more valuable than the stuff inside, right? Right. I I always hope that, you know, in my head that someday somebody is going to actually find it in an attic and, you know, with the papers near it or something, but it's probably probably not going to be true. So. David, do you have a more uh, romantic uh, imagination <laughs> of what might have happened or oh. do you kind of agree? The romantic version is is in the book, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, right, you, right. you hope that you hope that, you know, and it does in the book it becomes a very important thing and it's just, you know, if you really think about the scene at the train station and a a a young woman putting her suitcase down for 2 seconds, you know, the person who has it is not saying, oh my gosh, there might be some Hemingway manuscripts in there, even though we don't know who Hemingway is yet. So they're probably looking for, you know, jewelry or, or something valuable. And it once it wasn't discovered in the suitcase, probably went into the river. <laughs> exactly, right? If you can approach this from the perspective of a writer, is there something about material once it's gone uh, and, you know, I know this from undergraduates who've had six sentences zapped by a lightning storm and they, they can't locate it on their computer. And it was the best <laughs> six sentences in the history of <laughs> <laughs> analytic prose. Is there, is there that, like, the, the, the more you think about this, this, the lost manuscripts that they were all masterpieces is, have you, can you relate to that as, as writers? Has anything similar happened to you? I might have lost a few paragraphs here or there, but I guess I'm not that conceited about yeah. <laughs> my work to think it's the best thing I ever wrote. Um, gosh, and I have old manuscripts in my closet that have, are never going to see the light of day, you know. <laughs> I'd probably be horrified if somebody did find them and go, look, we found Sherry Harris manuscripts. Boy, is this bad. <laughs> so, so you don't have that I'm, kind I'm, of nostalgic <laughs> look at your own, at your own work. No, no, not yet. I, and didn't I read someplace that somebody said they weren't his greatest stories? Maybe he said mm -hmm. that. I don't, I don't remember for sure but i feel like i read that or i imagined yeah. one of the two <laughs> yeah depending on when he when he talked about it it was either you know it was, it was hamlet or it was it was just his <laughs> his his uh juvenilia right it was just he was just trying stuff out david what do you think about that yeah i i am um i'm like sherry you know i i i've never had the 
the, oh my gosh, my hard drive yeah. blinked or anything like that. Thankfully, um, you know, nowadays with, with some of the writing programs, you know, you, you have a backup and you have something that saves to a, you know, I have a little, uh, flash drive. So I have been in author groups, writer groups where people are like, what do I do? It's all gone, you know, 30,000 words. And it's maybe not that they think it's the best words, but oh, yeah, it's, it's half it's, the book. It's work. You know? Yeah. So, but I think I read the same thing, Sherry. I think I read that either someone had an opinion or he had an opinion that it, that it probably wasn't, it wasn't amazing work. It's just, it was his early work, you know? Right. Right. I had a friend actually that did um, NaNoWriMo where you try to write a novel in a month and she lost the whole thing. Oh, heavens. At the very end, <laughs> 50,000 words gone. And, and she never redid it. She just went, well, I knew I could do it and it's gone. Yeah. So, so I guess, you know, the novel, the garden of Eden, Hemingway's posthumous novel, that's essentially the climax of the novel that, that David Bourne rewrites the novel that, that, uh, his wife has, has destroyed. Um, David, I'm also, fascinated by the title of your novel, The Hemingway Code. We've done an episode with Jackson Breyer on The Hemingway Code. What did that mean to you? Why did, why was that a fitting title? I will come totally clean here. Uh, Sherry and I, I think we were <laughs> discussing this before. I had never heard the phrase Hemingway Code. Um, you know, I had never heard anything about um, a character or a being or a person in the books representing, you know, that code. Oh. Um I was using it uh, just completely from a, a perspective of, you know, oh, archaeological thrillers, you know, often have the Hemingway enigma or the Hemingway code or the Hemingway, you know, you know, and I kept trying to do manuscripts in some way, but it just never, you know, the Hemingway suitcase that didn't quite, didn't quite have the ring to it. So I somewhere came along and, and it does play into my book where the, the suitcase becomes a sort of repository for, for codes and things like that. So it's one of those uh, happy accidents. So you'd never it, even heard the it, phrase before. I had never. So no. when you saw the Jackson Briar episode, you thought it was an, a critique of your novel. The entire episode I was did. devoted I to. I said, "Oh, I better yeah, listen to that's this." A, yeah, that is a tough. One. Well, that's that is fascinating. That it's it can mean it can mean mm -hmm. two uh, two different things. Uh, I also uh, I also wonder because in both of your novels when you're writing in a particular genre like suspense or mystery i wonder what the overlap is between those styles the expectations of readers as uh versus hemingway's own style which can be very mm -hmm. direct and especially in the depiction of action did you negotiate Hemingway's own style with your own, Sherry? Not at all. <laughs> First of all, I, I don't think I could write in that style, you know. Um, I wish I could, but I'm no Hemingway. <laughs> and you're right, you know, I like to have a lot of action in my books, and um, but it's an amateur sleuth, you know, and so I have to make it as realistic as possible. So people obviously have to suspend disbelief a little bit, but um, to make it human and, and um, somewhat believable that this woman is going to find out that she's found the manuscripts, they get stolen, 
the maid has taken off with them and she's out in the woods chasing after this maid trying to find them. So, yeah. David, was that a, a consideration of yours? Uh, no. Um, and I think, uh, I think it goes back to probably if you, if you think about what, what literature was for Hemingway, it was, I need to get from point A to point B and his style became classic before it was, was done that way. Um, you know, even when you, when you look at a novel now that's more direct, it still has more surrounding the, the action than maybe a Hemingway uh, book did. And I don't think I've ever tried or could live up to that sort of writing style. Um, in fact, I'd probably go way overboard. My editor would tell you I go the other way. It's too much. <laughs> Do your you need to take some of this out. Do each of your editors, is there kind of an expectation? I don't want to say formula because that makes it sound um, sort of, trite and but is there sort of like by this many pages something must have happened is there a kind of a reader expectation where that you kind of have to hit those marks in your particular genre sherry does that make sense yeah it does and i always like to try to kind of push the boundaries of expectations um so um you know, with traditional mysteries, they usually say the body has to drop in the first 30 pages. And so um, I did one where the body dropped in the first sentence, <laughs> and I done them where it was on page 50. And so, um, but there are, you know, there most um, cozy mysteries are set in small towns or in a neighborhood in a, a small knit community in a big city. And so, yeah, you have to, you don't want to shock. You don't want somebody to expect a certain kind of book and then write a different kind of book. Is that consistent with your approach, David? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I think our readers definitely have expectations when they pick up a book of that sort. Um, my readers are probably more prone to accept that there is a, lo a pretty long prologue before um, the the actual characters that are you know the main characters show up. You know, I mean, there's three or four chapters of the of the incident where the suitcase was lost, and then this the next part, which is a little more fictional, that leads you to why the main characters are involved. And I mean, I think that's the way. I really do think it's the way readers subconsciously know what they're reading. Um, you know, if they if they pick up a, a book that's more like a mystery or more something like that, I think they expect that we're going to have something big time drop, like she said, in the first 20, 30 mm -hmm. pages. Whereas a thriller like this, it almost has to be the first page. You know, it almost sometimes you have to, you know, there, there has to be an action scene, a James Bond scene right before the real story starts or else people are like, well, wait, where's the action? I think I'm I'm bored already. Sherry Harris and David Behrens, thank you so much for joining us to discuss the Hemingway suitcase. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. Thank you. This episode of One True Podcast is supported by the Hemingway Review, the scholarly journal of the Ernest Hemingway Foundation and Society. Michael and I are huge fans of the Hemingway Review 
We always read it to see the latest scholarship. You can buy back issues of the Hemingway Review at HemingwaySociety.org backslash journals. Here at One True Podcast, we are happy to announce the publication of Reading Hemingway's The Garden of Eden by Carl Eby, a line-by-line commentary on that fascinating, posthumously published novel and also its sprawling manuscript, as only Carl knows it. It's the book that we need on that novel, guiding you through its composition, France in the 1920s, its literary allusions, Hemingway's literary experiments with gender and sexuality, and of course, the legendary deleted subplot. To read this book side by side with the published version of The Garden of Eden is to gain an entirely new sense of the book Scribner's published. It's also the best way to get a sense of the book that Hemingway actually wrote. To get your copy, visit KentStateUniversityPress.com. Diane Gilbert Madsen is the author of the D.D. McGill Literati Mystery Series, including Hunting for Hemingway and the Conan Doyle Notes, The Secret of Jack the Ripper. Formerly of Oak Park, Illinois, Diane has been published in PBS Expressions Magazine and the Hemingway Review. For more information about Diane and her books, see DianeGilbertMadsen.com. Dennis McDougall has written 11 books, including True Crime Efforts and the biographies of Bob Dylan and Jack Nicholson. He is a former Los Angeles Times staff writer and CNN producer, and is here today for his work appropriately titled Hemingway's Suitcase. Diane and Dennis, thank you so much for joining us on One True Podcast. Great to be here. Terrific to be here. Well, both of you essentially had the same spark of inspiration which is the historical event in December of 1922 of Hemingway's missing suitcase. Perhaps each of you can tell your origin story, how you learned about the suitcase and where the light bulb uh, went off where you said, this is something I could use as inspiration for fiction. Diane, why don't you start off? Well, I am an English major And I suppose I have the gene. You know, when you have the gene, you love to research, you love to read things. And when I read about this incident in Hemingway's life, which happened in December of 1922, I, it haunted me. Uh, It, it, it's complex on so many levels. People talk about the fact that he lost his early work because his wife left the valise in the train compartment and went out to get a newspaper and water. But that's only one part of the story. Yes, he missed the stories, but it's so complex. It affected not only his relationship with his first wife, Hadley, but it affected him all his life because he reminded people of the incident in almost everything he wrote, certainly toward the end of his life. It was in almost every references to it in almost every work that he produced. And uh, I think it's also a reflection of him. He did lose uh, 11 short stories, the beginnings of a novel, which uh, Hadley said was about uh, Michigan and uh, Nick Adams. 
and he lost some poems that were maybe like 20 and some sketches, which I wonder if it wasn't like Paris 1922 that he had started at that time. So he did lose a volume of work, no doubt about it. And anybody, especially today with a computer, it's easy to lose work. You know what that feels like. It really is horrible. But at the same time, uh, he made it a, a, a kind of a, a, of a foundational point in his life. He referred to it. It was a touchstone. He referred to it all the time. It was heavily significant. And I think it says a lot about Hemingway's character uh, because of that. So I, I was haunted by it. And I started, I had started writing a literati mystery stories. And my first one was about Robert Burns. Uh, and it, it was a true incident in his life, which was very exciting. And then I thought of this incident as uh, very exciting for my next novel. And I termed it Hunting for Hemingway. And in the novel, Hemingway's manuscripts turn up. Uh, there's somebody in Chicago who has been searching for them, and they turn up anonymously. And I used the anonymous package uh, from some material I had uh, read about earlier. Somebody else got a manuscript from somebody, and they couldn't trace it. They, they didn't know who it ever came from. So, uh, But in my book, you do find out eventually who it came from. There was a little note left with the manuscripts in the valise. We will pick up on your book and how it's appropriated in just a second, but that's that's a great origin story. Dennis, how about yours? Mine is not quite so lofty. I, too, um, made the um, mistake early on in my career to be an English major. <laughs> and um, uh, I segued um, pretty quickly into newspapering when I found out uh, how much a, a, an English professor uh, made. Uh, I'm sorry about that, by the way, Mark. Um, you have no idea. <laughs> well, listen, uh, being a newspaper reporter is not much better. So in many respects, it's a lot worse, uh, especially these days, given the fact that there are no such things as newspapers anymore. But at any rate, um, I, um, I've always had a you know, special place in, in my literary heart for Hemingway. Uh, identified with him, uh, you know, I, I've, uh, fan, like many other men of my age and uh, semi-breeding, uh, I fancy myself um, uh, a Hemingway-esque uh, macho guy sometimes. Uh, and um, and I, I've been to drink from time to time, not unlike uh, um, Mr. Hemingway. So um, flash forward, I'm in my newspaper career, and in 1981, I um, went to Stanford for a year on a um, journalism fellowship. Uh, and while I was there, I had the run of the campus, and you know the, the fellowship rules were that you could take any class that you wanted, uh, and um, there were no expectations. So I took um, classes in psychology and law, but I also took a couple of English classes to get back into it again. And I befriended a professor there named Ken Fields, uh, who's still a friend to this day. And um, we had many discussions uh, in the faculty, 
club uh, about Hemingway. Uh, and um, that was pretty much the genesis of how this all came to be. I It gestated for many years. I wrote several of my books and left the LA Times uh, before I, I got serious about trying to do something about it. But it just always struck me as being this incredibly seminal event. And it took into consideration an awful lot of the things that happened uh, in my life as a reporter. I, at the LA Times, I covered Hollywood. Uh, and I told, I've told people after the fact that uh, I generally write about true crime and, and Hollywood, uh, even though that's probably redundant. Um, and, um, it seemed to me like this could be a, a great way to spin a yarn about, uh, the missing suitcase and the mystery, uh, that hung over it then and now, uh, and at the same time, um, do a, a spoof on, uh, on Hollywood. And that's kind of what I wound up doing. And it was, uh, you know, sometimes writing is uh, a real pain in the butt, as I'm sure Diane would be glad to testify. But this was just a pure joy all the way through because it was a total lark. And, yeah. um, and I enjoyed the hell out of it. And I do it again. In fact, I may just do that. Dennis, with that response in mind, and also, Diane, if you could weigh in on this, to take this as you were calling it a seminal moment in Hemingway's life and then filling in the backstory and uh, using your imagination, did, were there other parts of Hemingway's life that you considered uh, his plane crashes, his suicide, his other adventures uh, hunting U boats, or was there something about the suitcase that was the most prominent and the most exciting for you? Well, I mean, you know, the the whole of Hemingway and, and who he, he represented, uh, what he represented um, as far as his life out, outside of the writing room um, fascinated me then and now, as I'm sure it does uh, any number of people. Uh, you know, th this is... Writers in general, I guess, have a tendency to, uh, if they get to that stature, uh, to create their own myths. You know, you, you hark back to Hemingway's uh, favorite from uh, uh, the, the 19th century, and, and it's uh, Mark Twain. Well, you know, Mark Twain was a hell of a lot different than uh, Samuel Clemens. They were not the same person by a long shot. And, um, uh, you know, Hemingway essentially, without changing his name, did uh, much the same thing in the 20th century. Uh, you know, to this day, you know, he's been go gone now for uh, what? Um, uh, over almost 60, is it 60 years? Now? Yeah. yeah. 60 years. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, the... The I would submit to you that to most people, uh, the myth of Ernest Hemingway uh, supersedes what he wrote. Sure. Yeah. Diane, 
does all of Hemingway absorb you in this way or, or did the suitcase capture it for you for a unique reason? Well, the suitcase was the basis for my literati mystery. And it was purely a mystery. And that's why I stuck to that particular incident in Hemingway's life. But I lived in Oak Park for quite a while. It was when the Oak Park uh, Foundation was getting uh, started, the Hemingway Foundation. It was when they were getting the house organized for a museum. And, of course, there was a great deal of interest still in academia about Hemingway. But with Women's Lib, he had taken a downturn. In fact, I believe in Oak Park at the time, there had been a vote that he was really not a very well-respected person in Oak Park. You know, his, his, his reputation had gone down. And I thought, no, that's not right. It's going to come back again because of everything else that happened to him. Yes, I was very interested in the plane crashes because yeah. people were talking about whether or not there was a problem with concussive, uh, all those concussions he had during his life affecting his final uh, decision to kill himself. And uh, I think that the plane crashes were another great story. Uh, anybody could use that for uh, a super story because don't forget all the telegrams he got. The news, the newspapers represented that he and had and uh, Mary had both died in the first plane crash. And so he kept getting wonderful telegrams, you know, glad you're not dead. <laughs> and uh, especially from Tutch Shore, I remember that one very well. So, yes, his whole life has, is very interesting. And I think that's why people still stay in love with him. His persona is, uh, is almost bigger than his work sometimes. And people know about his persona more than they know about the specifics of either his writing right. or his real life. And that's one of the reasons I brought the lost manuscripts uh, into my story, because most people really didn't know that. Hemingway aficionados do, but most people really don't didn't know about it because I got so many comments after my book came out from people who didn't know the story and were fascinated. So in both of your novels, the lost manuscript is treated as uh, the Holy Grail. So it's like a, it's like a grail adventure to find this, uh, this magical object. Uh, does the, do these manuscripts mean something different to everybody who wants it? Uh, is, do we, do we, for instance, do we care what they say and what Hemingway's actual writing is, or is it more about the value? How do each of your novels approach that question? Dennis? The, the loss of, uh, of early manuscripts is not, you know, um, it, it's not simply, uh, a, uh, something that happened to, to Hemingway. It's happened to others as well. They lost them in different ways. Uh, but you know, the, the, the implication is that, uh, you lose that work and you're never going to be able to, uh, duplicate it. Uh, and isn't that a shame? Um, most people who write for a living, um, if they're honest with themselves, uh, look back upon their um, early writing as um, um, crap. And um, I would submit that were he being honest 
and you know it's not entirely um, certain that uh, Hemingway could be honest, uh, at least not in that regard. Um, he would probably say, well, you know, it was probably a good thing that I lost the stuff because uh, I would hate for people to go back and pick through it, which is what, you know, uh, what we do. Um, We want to find out how people came to be who they are. So we trace back through their, uh, their earliest efforts and they're kind of embarrassing. Uh, I I think that, uh, you know, fate, dealt Hemingway um, a pretty nifty hand by stealing his suitcase Um, because he started out, you know, uh, with a bang. Um, Nick Adams and and, um, The Sun Also Rises isn't a bad way to start any career. (laughs) Diane? Well, of course, you're right. Uh, there have been other people who have had lost work, like Arthur Conan Doyle, for example. He had one of his novels that got lost in the mail. <laughs> and uh, he said, I'm, I'm glad about it. But of course, Hemingway said that too later, much later in his life, even though he kept writing about the loss. But in my book, I wanted to give some due justice to what maybe that story was. Uh, I I read that in Paris, Hemingway and Hadley, his first wife, had something on their wall, and it was a map of Michigan. And I think that's uh, very illustrative of how much Michigan meant to him and how much he poured those experiences into a lot of the first works that he did. So uh, I had put something in there uh, somebody who you know uh, who might read it, who, who didn't know what Hemingway wrote, would at least see something that was Hemingway-esque. But then my novel goes into all of the legalities of somebody finding the work. It also has some insurance uh, layered into it because at first the insurance people who insure the works want to prove they're real. But then after the murder, they want to prove that they're fake because the manuscripts are stolen again. So it's a it's a lot of legal curiosities. I had a lot of fun doing that. And it was a lot of uh, uh, the auction people were very helpful to me in uh, talking about provenance and what would happen and having the books published. Would they be in the in the public uh, range? And you couldn't uh, do any you couldn't claim uh, ownership. So uh, mine is multi-layered, but I did want to have a little bit of Hemingway in there, w- which I did. Both of your responses make me think of the Garden of Eden and ha- the getting inside a writer's mind after his, not in this case, his manuscript was burned and having to undergo the exercise of redoing it, or let's say doing it again, but this time completely different or only what you remember. Uh, I'm sure as writers, that's the most horrifying thing to think of, uh, your, to think of your work being ruined and then having to start from scratch. Um, seems like, and I, I, Diane, your, your point about Hemingway never getting over it. Um, this seems to be one of the early traumas of his life that he keeps revisiting 
and trying to write about in also in obviously in a movable feast. Um, I, I'm wondering, do you think of so you in, it's inevitable that you would think about Hemingway's perspective as writers yourselves, but I'm also I never stop thinking about Hadley and what she must have uh, went through of being the person who was responsible for the suitcase, but then losing it. Um, what do you think uh, of Hadley's position in all this and also the Hemingway-Hadley relationship uh, pre and post suitcase? Well, frankly, the first thing that I really thought of when I read about the incident was not Hadley. It was the thief. I thought, mm. what did he think when he opened that valise? Yeah. You know, not knowing. I mean, it was just papers, not knowing what they would mean in the future. And, of course, one can't help but wonder what he really did with it. Hadley, I have never believed that Hadley lost the manuscripts or let them be lost deliberately. She was so encouraging, and she had a good heart. And I do think she was devastated. Uh, I think as a writer, he had a right to be angry about it. But the fact that he never got over it and he never was really man enough to recognize that he probably did much better later on. I mean, I've written my first novel. I'm telling you, I threw it out in the garbage. I would never want anybody <laughs> else to read it. When I look back at it after some years, you know, oh, my gosh. So I was happy to uh, to have that gone. But I don't think Hadley ever got over it either. Uh, as you know, when she was interviewed uh, later in her life, she she choked up over it still. After all those years, it was a seminal moment in her life as well. And and maybe it was the beginning of the breakup because there suddenly there was some lost trust. Yes. Oh, she doesn't think enough of me. Oh, she doesn't care enough about me. How could this ever happen? Uh, yeah, I, I think that it, it was a very, very bad time for her. Yeah. Dennis? I agree with uh, Diane that th this was a, a seminal moment for uh, maybe more for Hadley than it was for, for Ernest uh, himself. Because um, up to, to that point, you know, she was like, uh, she, she was the blushing bride and uh, accompanying her uh, her white knight to Europe, and they were making a new life together, and everything was peachy keen, and uh, you know they were uh, they were part of the the young um, uh, lost generation making making it together. You know, I, I think back to uh, my own first marriage and uh, how we trudged through Europe together um, the uh, uh, the end of the first year that we were married. It was one of the best times of my life. Uh, you know, things kind of went downhill uh, later on. Uh, but that moment in time uh, where you're out adventuring to that together, it's like, you know, uh, two people uh, marching out of Eden together, hand in hand. And, you know, this put a, an abrupt halt to that because Hadley got to see firsthand uh, just how wonderful her 
stalwart uh, macho husband was uh, yeah. after all of his hard work was lost uh, in one fell swoop. And, you know, I mean, uh, I, I'm not sure exactly what happened in their Swiss chalet, but I doubt very seriously that it was uh, um, particularly um, pleasant to watch or hear. Uh, and she got to see who it really was uh, that she had married. I think that they kept it together. Um, and uh, obviously, um, with the birth of uh, Bumby, it's, uh, they stayed together for a, a, a longer. You know, they were adhering to the 19th century idea of marriage forever. But, uh, you know, the first time that... that um, um, Pauline floated um, a um, uh, come hither, yeah. uh, it was over with. And I think that was a blessing for Pat Hadley in the long run because, you know, she yeah. divorced and she went on to live longer than virtually everybody else and had a pretty damn good life. I can't help but picture Hadley in the train in the hours leading to uh, encountering Ernest to have to tell him uh, what, what had happened. That's just, that's horrifying. Um, in fact, the, maybe we can end, I want to end with one uh, follow-up on Diane's point. So you were saying about the thief, what happened? I mean, are we assuming he, the thief opened the suitcase, saw that it was papers, threw the, threw the papers out and kept the suitcase? Do we have? Do is there a more elaborate explanation, or did your imaginations go a different direction about what might have happened? And are these you know, oh the papers are actually stored in some attic in Paris somewhere, or they're just long gone? Well, of course, our imaginations went wild. <laughs> in both of our books, something happens, so they were not destroyed. I uh, I would say that in my book, I used a device. Uh, that could have been probable, uh, i.e. that there was some identification on the valise and possibly the thief just tossed it somewhere and it finally got back to a location and was sent to someone who was a Hemingway scholar. But uh, one really just doesn't know. I think one interesting thing that uh, comes out about the theft was how absolutely bureaucratic the people on the train were to Hadley. They didn't want to listen to her. They didn't want to look for anything. They just wanted to be on time if they were on time. And uh, so there was a lot of confusion and uh, not a lot of definitive investigation that went on at the train station. Uh, after Hemingway came back, he didn't have a lot of time to investigate what had happened. They just looked around. They looked in all the trash cans and everything sure. like that. But who knows? And I think that kind of thing allows your imagination to go wild. Dennis, speculation about that? Well, I mean, obviously, uh, <laughs> I, my imagination didn't, in fact, go go wild because I invented the uh, uh, the thief and followed him through uh, the story um, with um, uh, you know little. Um, episodes uh there's the main narrative and then there's the episodes in 
involving Ferret, the guy who made off with the suitcase, um, all of which, you know, I did not take seriously at all. Uh, and I hope that uh, any who've read it and think that I was being serious uh, is disabused of that now uh, and forever. Um, but, you know, I mean, uh, looking back at it, um, uh, I suppose from a semi-serious standpoint, um, you know, in 1922, uh, the Hemingways or uh, the people who uh, who came to uh, Paris looking to be the next uh, Ford, Maddox Ford, or uh, James Joyce, were a dime a dozen. And uh, who now? Who knows how many suitcases were lost? There are probably um, a lot of them. I mean, or at least people who maintain that they lost their seminal work early on, and that's why you know, like the the the, uh, the dog ate my homework. Right. <laughs> Um, so it it doesn't surprise me a lot, I suppose, that, um, uh, the bureaucrats didn't care, uh, what it, you know, what became of it, that's like a a wonderful, um, parlor game. It's that's suitable for, uh, you know, cocktail, um, speculation and, or, uh, bar bets, if they still have such a thing. Or a podcast. Or a podcast. Well, when you say what became of it, there is one thing we haven't talked about, and that is, did Hemingway offer a reward? There were a lot of lost suitcases because you saw advertisements in the newspapers at the time, and they offered rewards that were pretty hefty. Hemingway only wanted to offer 150 francs, which is like $10 or something like that. And uh, Lincoln Steffens even told him and, and, and Bill Burke, don't, it's too much, too little. Nobody will return the suitcase for that. It's nothing. It's like giving him a dime, you know. So uh, he didn't care enough to put out a reward that might have netted something. We just don't know. It was never done. Dennis McDougall, Diane Gilbert Madsen, thank you so much for joining us and talking about the 1922 suitcase. Thank you. Been a pleasure. And thanks to you all for listening in. This episode is available on onetruepod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is supported by the Hemingway Society, the English Department at the University of Evansville, and Florida Gulf Coast University. Join us next time as we continue exploring Hemingway, his life, his work, and his world. Until then, I'm Mark Chirino with Michael Von Cannon, and this is One True Podcast. (laughs) 